Hello everyone, this is Kim C. I am a university fiction teacher making my way through the underexplored Stephen King works that need and require a little more conversation. Hello my friends, welcome to part two of four within our four part, four past midnight coverage. Last time, we climbed aboard American Pride Flight 29, headed to Boston by way of a time rip in our earthly dimension. We chatted all about the sci-fi mystery that is the Langoliers. I know it was a little bit of a bumpy ride, but we made it. I hope you guys enjoyed, for it is now two past midnight, which means I have finished the second installment in this 1990 novella collection. Secret window, secret garden. Oh, guys, <sighs> listeners, hold the phone and shut the front door. King just decided to turn up the heat, did he not? Jehoshaphat, I was flipping the pages rather fast on this one, my dudes. Whoa, whoa, this one got spooky, this one got creepy. This story got downright unsettling, and then we have a crazy insane climax, and then BAM, it's over. Secret Window, Secret Garden is a wild ride indeed, folks, and I'm so happy you're here with me to talk about it because I gotta talk about it, I'm bursting. So just like last time, once more, we have a wonderful author forward before the novella begins, and I wanted to share a bit of it with you because it makes the entire premise absolutely compelling. Here we go. I'm 42 now, and as I look back over the last four years of my life, I can see all sorts of cloture. It's as apparent in my work as anywhere else. In it, I took an outrageous amount of space to finish talking about children and the wide perceptions which light their interior lives. Next year, I intend to publish the last Castle Rock novel, Needful Things. The last story in this volume, The Sundog, forms a prologue to that novel. And this story is, I think, the last story about writers and writing and the strange no-man's land which exists between what's real and what's make-believe. I believe a good many of my longtime readers who have borne my fascination with this subject patiently will be glad to hear that. A few years ago, I published a novel called Misery, which tried, at least in part, to illustrate the powerful hold fiction can achieve over the reader. Last year, I published The Dark Half, where I tried to explore the converse, the powerful hold fiction can achieve over the writer. While that book was between drafts, I started to think that there may be a way to tell both stories at the same time by approaching some of the plot elements of the dark half from a totally different angle. Writing, it seems to me, is a secret act, as secret as dreaming, and that was one aspect of this strange and dangerous craft I had never thought about much. Love it, love it, love it. Wow, guys. So in this novella, we have a foundation of misery and a little bit of dark half, which I haven't read yet, and now I super want to, but I think it'll most likely stay in my Halloween slot for this year, because word on the street says dark half is a little bit spooky. However, Secret Window, Secret Garden is rather rich and very deep and quite frightening. And I'm absolutely fascinated to learn that 
There are two novels to have in mind when we approach this novella. Absolutely fascinating. In this episode, once more, we're going to take the traditional formula to investigate this 146-page novella inside my copy of the 1990 American hardcover. I plan to look at the strengths and some of the areas I really enjoyed. We are then going to talk about some characters and then segue into criticisms, maybe some wishing well, some questions. And then we will absolutely conclude this episode by discussing the 2004 film starring Johnny Depp as Mort Rainey. Yes, 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 that will happen. Friends, before we get going here, I'm going to have to spoil the hell out of this one for my own analysis, so please tread carefully. Going forward, I'm gonna reveal everything because I have to, so please make sure that you have freshly read or listened to this novella beforehand because I will not be able to be ambiguous here, folks. Usually, I try to tiptoe around all the things, however, this story I have to talk about it. I have to let it all out. I will absolutely not be able to hold back, friends. I can't. No way, Jose. So just know, after this section, everything will be ruined for you if you haven't read the story. So this is a very large heads up, buttercups. Do not let me ruin this story for you because it's pretty spectacular reading and discovering, especially the ending. So this is a giant, giant, giant warning to you all. I will not be able to be vague. Everything is going to get discussed in this episode, so watch out. Before we head into the episode, let's kick it off with our summary. Moore Rainey is a writer working on his next creative pursuit in the peace of his lake house when a stranger appears at his front door claiming, You stole my story. This stranger produces a near-identical manuscript from a short story Mort published several years before. The stranger gives Mort three days to admit that he in fact plagiarized the story or prove him wrong. In his pursuit to find the truth, Mort must also contend with his impending divorce from Amy, the woman who broke his heart and the one he discovered in bed with her lover. As the pressure from the accusation and the divorce culminate, Mort observes that he's stuck in a rather dangerous place with not only the stranger, but his own spiraling reality. Alright boys and girls, I think we're ready to get in the car and head to Tashmore Lake. Make sure you've got your road sodas and some snacks for the journey because we won't be stopping till we get there. Let's start the show.
ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Tashmore Lake. Let the field trip begin. Before we begin with the strengths of Secret Window Secret Garden, of which I have three categories to share with you today, I did want to mention a couple literary parallels I observed from this story that are later King publications. So I know in the author forward, King talks about misery and the dark half. The dark half, of course, I haven't read that yet. But misery, oh yeah, this totally works for a misery tale, especially when it comes to the character of Mort being forced to write. More on that later. But as I was reading Secret Window, Secret Garden for the very first time, I could not shake two novels out of my mind. Firstly, Bag of Bones. I read that one for the first time last year, I believe. Not sure. Time's a little bit of a mystery right now. And we've got a lot of similarities. The main character in that novel, I know his name is Mike. I just don't remember the last name. Heads up to Dark Score Lake to spend some time after the tragic death of his wife. He wants to write, but of course, his ability is in a vice grip. Meanwhile, there's a little bit of poltergeisty stuff happening there because Dark Score Lake is cursed as all hell, folks. And the reason why it is cursed is discovered at the very end, and it is the most traumatic, horrifying King ending I've ever read in my life, so please tread carefully with that one. Oh my god, I cannot emphasize that enough. Oh my goodness. But anyway, I was thinking about Bag of Bones when reading Secret Window, Secret Garden. I was also thinking about Lisey's story. Oh my goodness, guys. Oh my goodness. Okay. So in Lisey's story, whether you've seen the Apple TV miniseries, which is quite wonderful in my opinion, or read the novel, which a lot of us constant readers haven't made it through because it is bonkers town. It's a very challenging book. However, lots of similarities. In Lisey's story, the character of Jim Dooley, our villain, comes to Lisey Landon's house demanding the unpublished manuscripts from Scott Landon. Lisey, of course, tells him to take a long walk off a short pier, and he says, okay, cool, if that's your answer, then uh, yeah, you got three days and I'm gonna give you some time to think on it. Meanwhile, there's a dead cat in her mailbox. Terrible. I hate animal death in King stories. Unfortunately, there's a lot of it. It's a hard pill to swallow. But fast forward, or rather rewind, I should say, to Secret Window, Secret Garden. The character of John Shooter, double O, Shooter and Dooley. Coincidence? Don't know. John Shooter demands that Mort Rainey surrender and admit that he plagiarized his story, Secret Window, Secret Garden, and retitled it Sewing Season, and he's gonna give him three days to think about it. Meanwhile, Mort discovers his dead cat bump on his front doorstep. Or rather, I think it's in the trash can. I might have got that wrong. But yeah, two dead cats, double O last names, demanding writerly goods. Interesting, folks. So I always love to look at these little sproutlings written in King's early career and see how they might have been a blueprint for these future novels down the road. And we've got the isolated lake house setting, Tashmore Lake, of course, very, very similar to Dark Score Lake, minus the haunted nature of it. We have the confrontation of John Shooter to Mort, 
and Jim Dooley confronting Lacey on more than one occasion, tragically. But yeah, I was definitely thinking about those two novels when it came to Secret Window, Secret Garden. Okay, that tangent's over. Let's get into our three categories. Number one, soul-destroying shame. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, hear me out with this one. As I read Secret Window, Secret Garden, I was really examining the character of Mort Rainey. And this is a guy, from my observations, who is very afraid of failure, very afraid of rejection. And he is one of those individuals, which there are a lot of us out there, who have some talent or some ability in a certain trade or skill, and they put all their money on it guys they put all their eggs in that basket we see this a lot with professional athletes which i bring up because i'm recording this very close to super bowl time professional athletes do this a lot or rather those who want to be professional athletes they have trained and played the game since they were children they get into high school hoping to be recruited for a university team and then after that they hope to be drafted into the pros The thing is, oh my goodness, guys, like the statistics are astronomically dark to making the pros. They just are. It's just so hard. And oftentimes, these young, beautiful people, when they don't achieve their dreams, have no identity. They only know themselves as a football player, a baseball player, a soccer player, an Olympic swimmer, a snowboarder, a writer, a painter a musician. They only identify with themselves in this one capacity and output. And so when that is taken away, whether by bad luck, circumstances, tragic accidents, permanent injuries, they crack, guys, because they don't have any identity outside of that. And it's so tragic, guys. I actually see this a lot with my students and it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. I have these amazingly talented writers and they put their heart and soul into a story and sometimes the workshop doesn't go well for them. They get a lot more negative feedback or questions or a lot more criticisms than they thought. They thought they wrote the most beautiful story ever and then the workshop will really destroy them and they can spiral a little bit. Suddenly they are incredibly emotional. They'll start to not participate in class as much because they're just in their head about failing, not being good enough. They're supposed to be good at this. They've been good at it their entire lives thus far. What's happening? It's amazing and it's tragic and I see it a lot. And what I always tell my students, couple tips and tricks for you writers out there. You have 24 hours to feel like crap. You have 24 hours to beat yourself up, to feel like a failure, to call yourself all the names in the book, to feel like trash. And then what you're gonna do is toss away and recycle most of the drafts that aren't helpful to you, keep some of the ones that are. After 24 hours, you are done. You are done, ladies and gentlemen, no more. You keep going or you quit, one of the two. You either keep trying, keep chiseling away at it or you give up and do something different it's that simple but 24 hours 24 hours is all that i used to allow myself in grad school it's what i encourage my students to do you only get a short window for feeling like crap and then you need to slam the window shut and move on 
Do not let those negative voices and negative feelings of self-doubt to crush you. It's easier said than done in writing. Writing is one of those that's easier to navigate those rough rapids. But something like what athletes have to deal with, oh my goodness, injuries and damage to the body, way more difficult. But let's get back on track here. The character of Mort is one of those. He is someone who we learn in the story was talented the majority of his life. When he finally gets into a college classroom with a very talented professor who's a published author, he's just ready to flaunt his feathers. But he gets a rejection letter from a literary magazine, which wasn't so much as a big deal, but then starts cracking at the veneer he's got when he meets a kid named John Kittner. John Kittner is an absolute wunderkind. He is a star. He is not a very chatty, gregarious individual, but his story is just white-hot fire. Crowfoot Mile is the greatest thing since sliced bread, and Mort allows it to destroy him. He feels the crushing weight of doubt and despair and terror that if he's not good enough, if he's not good, there's nothing else he can do. There's nothing he wants to do. And he yells at Amy later on in the story when they're talking about their divorce. And she says, you were never even home when you were home. You were always in your head imagining and writing. And he's like, what did you want me to do, Amy? There's nothing else I could do. All of it is in the writing bucket. All of it was for that. And there was nothing else that he could fall back on or pursue or have a side hustle or just the sense of self that even if he's not a good writer, he's still a worthy person. You are worthy just for breathing O2 and converting it to CO2. That's what makes you worthy. You are a living, breathing person on this planet. That's all you need. That's all that's required for you to have value. And Mort doesn't feel that. And I think, sadly, a lot of folks don't feel that. Outside in society, we are so hard on ourselves. If we're not performing, if we're not producing some sort of result, we fail. And if we fail, we are worthless and unlovable and... Oh man, it just gets really psychologically dark, folks. And what King does in this story is take that subject of shame that Mort has and makes it absolutely soul-destroying. Shame is what manifests into this very dark entity, and it takes the reins in Mort's life and destroys his life. Huge spoilers ahead, watch out, watch out. But the character of Mort, in that desperation, in that college class, in the very hotbed of, oh my god, (laughs) college writing workshops. It's a pissing contest, guys. It just is. You have to keep a level head about you, but everybody's trying to assert their talent and show their abilities, whether they want to or not. I see it all the time. Whether they're trying to be cool as a cucumber or really relaxed, it's always a competition, a creative competition. And that's just something you have to keep in mind when you're in that setting. However, Mort takes it too far and commits the worst sin you could ever commit in terms of publication and trademarking. He plagiarizes. He steals this guy's story. He steals it, puts a new title on it. I think... I think he does. I hope he does. He might have turned it in as Crowfoot Mile. Oh my god. But steals this guy's story, gets published, receives all the glory. Future success is connected to that lie. 
And thus the snowball starts to roll down the hill. This lie, little lie, big consequences. But the shame that Mort feels about that lie, about the imposter behind the words, really starts to eat away at him. So then when we meet Mort at the beginning of the story, he is at the end of a marriage because Amy, via her philandering, her physical copulation with a different man, in secret, another lie, is declaring to Mort, you're not good enough. You were not a good enough husband. You were not a good enough partner. You failed. You failed me. You failed our marriage. You failed as a husband. That's all Mort is hearing. And he's already in that zone of beating himself up as you are not a writer. You are a fake. You are a liar. You are an imposter. So now there's more of that coming into the frame. So we have a guy hearing a lot of terrible things about himself. And that shame inevitably destroys him, my guys. Oh my goodness, yes it does. So soul-destroying shame is at the heart of this story. And while this novella is incredibly thrilling, right? We have really fascinating stuff going on, of which I'm going to talk about more here in a second. Yes, it's thrilling. Yes, it's spooky. But when it's all said and done, guys, it's very sad. Very, very sad. And there's a lot to say. There's a lot to observe in that sadness. So good stuff. Good stuff all around. Let's head into our second category, point of view. I loved this, folks. So this novella has a singular first-person point of view with Mort Rainey as our narrator. For a guy who has so many life stressors coming at him, Mort is seemingly relaxed, like appears that way. However, what we've sort of explored in society, sadly, those individuals who seem the most collected and put together are the ones who really should not be by themselves. They are the ones who we should be calling with greater urgency and frequency. We need to be checking in on them. Mort is one of those. He seems like he's relaxed and good to go, but on the inside, when he's alone, when he's in the silence of the Tashmore Lake house or trying to take a nap on that couch, this guy is spiraling and falling apart. But King gives him the entire story to narrate up until the end. So in the third act, we have a lot of crazy stuff happening, guys. Whoa, tons of action, a lot of violence. It's really frightening. And then at the very end, the last few pages, the point of view switches to Amy Rainey, right? When everything starts to boil over, King snatches the POV from Mort. Things go a little off the deep end. Yes, they do. And then Amy finishes telling the story. So it's incredibly effective, guys, because... The entire story, we're feeling okay with Mort. We might have one or two little inklings of something might not be right, but right when we get to that third act, we realize that our reliable narrator is no longer reliable. No, 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 no. So we gotta sidestep it out of this party and run away from Mort because no good, guys. No bueno, danger, danger, Will Robinson. That's what happens to Mort. And then Amy narrates the last half of the story. Incredibly successful. Really, really enjoyed that. And then my last category 
is one of my favorite devices that King uses in his stories. Oh, it's so good. That is the isolated setting. We have this all over the place, we really do. It works so well in gothic novels. When I was in school, I had to learn all about the moors in my Britlet classes. Craggy, cloudy, windy, desolate. And then of course, you put some characters in the moors, surrounding them with this isolated, cold darkness, and let the drama begin. But King, of course, has some pretty spectacular isolated settings within his work. We, of course, have two in Sidewinder, Colorado. We've got Annie Wilkes' cabin in the middle of the Colorado woods. We also have one of the most famous ones of all, and that is the Overlook. But as I mentioned earlier with Bag of Bones, we've got Darkscore Lake in this story. We have Tashmore Lake. We have isolated settings everywhere, guys. They are wonderful locations to position your pieces and to put somebody with some issues in the quiet of their own mind and let everything boil over and that's exactly happens with the character of mort mort is someone who should not have been by himself and if you are a creative person because sadly we creative folks are more susceptible to mental illness it's just one of those facts one of those things that are annoying but we have to deal with them if you are someone who has the privilege of having an additional location to spend your time, whether it be summer house, beach house, cabin, make sure you are going into town at least once a day, guys. The weekends are not enough. You need to be encountering human beings. Find yourself a coffee shop, a park bench, a store, a bookshop. You need to go there every day. I do not like these isolated settings where it's just you yourself and you and your thoughts and you're spiraling out no 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 because i believe if mort would have went into town with greater frequency and hopefully sought out a therapist in said town a lot of this could have been avoided but of course it's the early 80s we're not quite there yet with behavioral health <laughs> however just a psa if you are at your woodsy lake house slash cabin or your beach house and it is just nothing and no one for miles and miles make sure you're going into town with frequency everyone you need to encounter people you need to be around humans do not let your thoughts roam wild all by yourself freaks me out and we know in stephen king's stories this is the path to madness guys the isolated setting is what sets everything in motion. It's what lights the fuse. And while it creates an incredible story, it's also always a tale of caution. So the isolated setting of Tashmore Lake, the lake house, the quiet, the couch where he's frequently taking naps. Those naps, of course, weren't always filled with sleep, were they, ladies and gentlemen? No, they were not. Lots of fugue state stuff happening with those naps that we later found out. But the isolated setting, tremendously cool. Very, very good. One of my favorite things that Stephen King does within his stories. Also, before I forget, Rat from 2020's If It Bleeds. That was another good novella. What happened? That guy went to his cabin to write a story and he ended up talking to a rat. Yes, he did. Because that's what happens when you're alone in a Stephen King story. So watch out folks make sure you're going into town frequently let us transition to an excerpt from the text before we head out to our next category i did want to read a really cool scene that kind of encompasses 
the point of view I was talking about and right when it's starting to get a little dicey for our friend Mort, things start to amplify in terms of all the drama that's cooking up. So this is on page 366 in the American hardcover. I know you, Mort said in the dream. That's right, Pilgrim, John Kittner said in his bald, drawling southern accent. You just put me together wrong. Now keep on writing. It's not 500, it's 5,000. Mort started to turn, but his foot slipped on the edge of the gutter, and suddenly he was spilling outward, screaming into the dry, chalky air, and John Kittner was laughing, and he woke up on the floor with his head almost underneath the rogue coffee table, clutching at the carpet and crying out in high-pitched, whinnying shrieks. He was at Tashmore Lake, not in some weird cyclopean classroom, but at the lake, and dawn was coming up misty in the east. I'm alright, it was just a dream, and I'm alright. But he wasn't, because it hadn't just been a dream. John Kittner had been real. How in God's name could he have forgotten John Kittner? Mort had gone to college at Bates and had majored in creative writing. Later, when he spoke to classes of aspiring writers, a chore he ducked whenever possible. He told them that such a major was probably the worst mistake a man or woman could make if he or she wanted to write fiction for a living. Get a job at the post office, he'd say. It worked for Faulkner, and they would laugh. They liked to listen to him, and he supposed he was fairly good at keeping them entertained. That seemed very important, since he doubted that he or anyone else could teach them how to write creatively. Still, he was always glad to get out at the end of a class or seminar or workshop. The kids made him nervous. He supposed John Kintner was the reason why. Had Kintner been from Mississippi? Mort couldn't remember, but he didn't think so. But he had been from some enclave of the Deep South all the same. Alabama, Louisiana, maybe the Thule's of North Florida. He didn't know for sure. Bates College had been a long time ago, and he hadn't thought of John Kintner, who had suddenly dropped out one day for reasons known only to himself in years. That's not true. You thought about him last night. Dreamed about him, you mean, Mort corrected himself quickly, but that hellish little voice inside would not let go. No, earlier than that, you thought about him while you were talking to Shooter on the telephone. He didn't want to think about this. He wouldn't think about this. John Kintner was in the past. John Kintner had nothing to do with what was happening now. He got up and walked unsteadily toward the kitchen in the milky early light to make strong coffee. Lots and lots of strong coffee. Except the hellish little voice wouldn't let him be. Mort looked at Amy's set of kitchen knives hanging from their magnetized steel runners and thought that if he could cut that little voice out, he would try the operation immediately. You were thinking that you rocked the man, that you finally rocked him. You were thinking that the story had become the central issue again, the story and the accusation of plagiarism. Shooter treating you like a goddamn college kid was the issue, like a goddamn college kid, like a- Shut up! Mort said hoarsely. Just shut the fuck up! The voice did, but he found himself unable to stop thinking about John Kintner anyway. As he measured coffee with a shaking hand, he thought of his constant, strident protestations that he hadn't plagiarized Shooter's story, that he had never plagiarized anything. But he had, of course, once, just once. That was so long ago, he whispered, and it doesn't have anything to do with this. It might be true, but that did not stop his thoughts. Ho ho ho, there it is! 
we got all of it in there, guys. We have the point of view. We have that pesky little voice, the voice of madness, the voice of truth bubbling up in the background, and the little inklings that Mort is beginning to become unreliable. Lots of great stuff there, guys. And of course, the shame. The shame soaked all over the place. So to recap our strengths for Secret Window, Secret Garden, we have soul-destroying shame as the main theme of this story. We also have great success with the point of view. Mort has it the entire time until the very end it's snatched away. And lastly, the isolated setting of Tashmore Lake. Ugh, too good. Too much quiet, too much solitude makes Jack a dull boy. Ooh, so good, guys. All right, mind the mud. Let's continue exploring Tashmore Lake, and I'll see you in the next section. Okay, we ones, let's talk about some characters. Within the Secret Window, Secret Garden story, we have a handful of characters that are local color. We've got a lot of caretakers, which we have in a lot of Stephen King stories. One of my favorites is, of course, Mr. Dick Halloran from The Shining, one of the best caretakers ever. But they don't receive a lot of spotlight, save for these three characters. Firstly, we are going to break down Mort Rainey just a little bit more than we have done thus far. King doesn't really provide a lot of character backstory to Mort, but as King is writing this story, he claims to be 42 years old. I do believe that Mort is right around the same age, and that age is pretty crucial usually in our 40s, maybe not so much in these modern days, but at least back then, one's 40s would typically be associated with potential divorce or the seven-year itch or children growing up and moving out of the house. That's not so much a thing anymore. Also, perhaps declining health. And what we have with the character of Mort is someone in deep, deep, deep personal crisis, guys. Not only did he discover his wife, Amy, in bed with her lover, which is, whoa. Personally, I think I would have committed a crime of passion. <laughs> That's why it exists in the law, right? I would have snapped. Don't think I would have been able to peacefully exit that scenario, but Mort does not choose violence, and I think the reason he doesn't definitely adds to the fracturing of sanity down the road. All of that anger and frustration and sadness just starts to boil over and scald everything in his life. But Mort is just encountering all kinds of crises. And in that stress, suddenly we have the appearance of John Shooter. John Shooter telling him, your writing's not good enough, you stole from me. Ergo, you need to question your entire identity because you're actually a giant failure who steals from people. You stole from me. And while you're thinking about that, remember that your wife left you and cheated on you and lied to you about it because you weren't good enough as a husband. So Mort is receiving an absolute downpour of terrible things, guys. 
This guy is encountering life's dramas. He is getting hit by the life bus over and over and over again, and King sets him up to not deal with it well. But what's interesting is the actual story, our narration. Once we get to the end, you can kind of think back, maybe King was just pulling a fast one and we didn't think he all had it together. But as I was making my way through the story, I couldn't help but notice that Mort seemed really cool as a cucumber. He really seems very calm, cool, and collected. He is pleasant when he encounters the townsfolk. He is moderately pleasant with Amy. There's a lot of sarcastic little jabs he throws at her often, but there are no yelling, screaming, crying phone calls that we know of. In the story, we learn it's been about six months since he has discovered the big awful between Amy and her lover, Ted Milner. So the shock has sort of lowered in temperature, but not really, because when the character of John Shooter comes into the scene, it absolutely allows Mort to derail, for sure. Mort is alone, as we mentioned in the isolated setting section. He is taking these long naps. A lot of therapists will tell you, especially if you have depression, sleep isn't exactly the best thing. By all means, don't deprive yourself of sleep, but you need just the right amount. (laughs) Too much sleep can be a very bad thing, and Mort takes a lot of naps, a lot of naps. We find out that he's not really asleep the whole time during those naps. He's going into these fugue states, which cause him to do terrible, horrific things. More on that later. But Mort is seemingly an okay individual, which we've been exploring societally in the last few years, how oftentimes the people who really appear like they've got everything under control are absolutely not okay, folks. They are the ones we do need to call and check on. They should not be by themselves in isolated settings. These are the ones who we need to keep in our sightline and in our thoughts because it's the ones that just seem the most put together and then we are absolutely horrified when they snap or suddenly commit suicide and it's like, oh my god, I never... Oh my goodness. But the next character I do want to explore a little bit is John Shooter. So the physical descriptions of John Shooter in the story tell us he is sort of tall and thin and very reminiscent of the guy in the painting American Gothic, if that one comes to mind. If not, you can Google it, just kind of a sallow-faced older individual with a very large black hat atop his head. I was thinking of Wilfred from 1922 with this description, but I was also channeling the Amish or something that is very, very country and farm associated. This black hat with a wide brim. He drives an older, maybe 1960s, vehicle, if I'm remembering correctly, with Mississippi plates. Mississippi, for those listening outside of the USA, Mississippi is the poorest state in America. It is. Those are the facts, folks. Statistically, Mississippi is one of the most disenfranchised states in the Union. Doesn't have a lot going for it. Struggles in several areas. So it's kind of interesting as the reader when we're piecing together some information on the character of John Shooter. What's also interesting about John, he's rather brazen, yet still polite, and seemingly not in a hurry. The southern way of expressing oneself can be a little bit more on the languid side, depending on where you're from. It's one of the reasons why southern accents are so charming, 
But John Shooter is very matter-of-fact, yet kind of polite, and he says, You stole my story, and I want you to A, admit what you've done, tell everybody that you stole it, and then later on in the story we learn, and I want you to write another story and give it to me. That's what John Shooter asks him. He gets right to the heart of Mort Rainey and has him do something that he would absolutely hate slash cannot do. The reason why he does this, of course, big spoiler here, please pause now if you don't want to hear it. The reason why he does this is because Mort Rainey is John Shooter, everybody. John Shooter is a figment of Mort's imagination. He is a part of him that is coming out this trauma-filled slice of the past that has been long buried by Mort. John Shooter has manifested to get Mort to deal this stuff. He's been burying a lot of things, a lot of past sins. And one of the big sins we learn about is the fact that in college, Mort did copy the story from a classmate, John Kittner, someone who may have in fact been Southern, but had a really amazing story. He was talented and Mort was so insecure. He was so uncomfortable by how talented and powerful this kid was. His literary ability was much stronger than Mort's. Mort decided to commit the worst sin you ever could commit when it comes to publishing and plagiarize. Absolutely steal this kid's story and put his name on it and receive all the glory and publication from it. Oh, it's terrible. It makes me sick. Oh man, if this, oh my god, I don't even want to think about if a student of mine did this. Like, uh, it would be bad, guys. Like, it would be bad. And I hope that they never do. (laughs) But John Shooter is, of course, the manifested shock and trauma within Mort that he hasn't been dealing with, he hasn't been confronting, and it manifests into something rather terrible. And this is a really fascinating story to observe in modern day, guys, because technically speaking with therapy, I think a lot of this could have been prevented, of course. But it is a scary story, so King is giving the reader the worst case scenario. What would happen if XYZ was put into place and nobody did anything about it and it just got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and go? And that's what the story is about. So Mort and John Shooter are actually one person. So when we look at characters, we're kind of looking at both of them as one, which is pretty fascinating. We learn, of course, that the black hat that Mort associates with John Shooter is something that he found at a garage sale, and he would wear it and make up this funny voice, and Amy knew all about it. So some really fascinating character stuff. John Shooter is Mort. So all of John's intensity and manipulation and cruelty, that's all coming from inside of Mort, from this place of fear and rejection and trying to hide who he truly is, becoming someone else because he's angry, all kinds of crazy stuff. Really fascinating when you step back from this story and examine these two slash one character. The last character who gets a large amount of spotlight is Amy Rainey. I'm assuming she's around the same age as Mort. Amy, of course, tells Mort she hasn't been happy for several years. However, she tells him this after she has the affair. She says, I haven't been happy in years. When we've been together, you've just been so absent. This is something she definitely should have communicated 
before her affair, of course, but that we wouldn't have a story without it. Amy makes some poor choices with Ted Milner. Ted was actually much more righteous and forthcoming and wanted to go to Mort with their relationship, but Amy was the one who snuck around. She is apologetic for it, but I don't know if King tries to make the reader like her. I think the reader's pretty indifferent for the most part. We are happy that Amy just wants to move on with her life. She just wants to sign the divorce papers, split up their assets, and go about their separate ways. That's sort of her goal. She wants good things for Mort. She just realizes she wasn't happy. She made some poor choices, but ultimately, let's move on with our lives. So Amy's kind of mature in that regard, but the one area of the story I kind of shook my head at, King has a line where I believe Mort and Amy are on the phone and Amy says, I didn't go around with multiple guys. It was just one. (laughs) And it's like, okay, that's great. I mean, I'm glad that it wasn't multiple dudes and Mort wasn't a clown. Not knowing about any of them, that would have been more humiliating in addition to all that trauma and terribleness. But it's like, you still lied. And that's what this story is about, is how these lies have big consequences. Mort cheated in college and stole someone's story, and now it's manifested as this terrible alternate self, coupled with all of this other adult trauma. Meanwhile, you stepped out with one man and lied about it. You were caught in the middle of it. That dishonesty, it's the lying. I think most divorce couples or people who've been through extramarital affairs, it's the lying. It's the abuse of trust. It's destruction of that cohesive unit of you won't hurt me, I won't hurt you kind of thing. All that gets bulldozed when one person's selfishness. Don't lie, period. If you're unhappy and you want to get out of your relationship, just tell them. Break up, pursue that other person, your life will be much better for it. Don't lie, guys. Don't cheat. Don't sneak around. Because look what happened to Mort. (laughs) He was seemingly okay with one little lie here, but it manifested into something really dark and sinister. And then of course, Amy's actions. That lie sent Mort absolutely spiraling, and girlfriend got in a lot of danger at the end because she caused such an intense amount of pain. She had no conceivable idea how much damage she caused to this other person. Usually in relationships, they say how one person is always a little bit more into it than the other. One half of the relationship is gonna love you 10 times more than the other. It's just the facts. It's just personalities. I think that Amy was probably one who wasn't as into it. Mort was super into it. I can tell because of how passionate he is about his writing craft. When it comes to love and togetherness, I mean, every day with the person you love is like another chapter in this romantic tale. I could tell Mort loved the hell out of it and he loved her way too damn much. So, Amy is an okay character. We don't have a lot of background info on either of them in terms of how long they were together, the things that brought them together in the first place, stuff I feel would have really helped. More on that later. But for the most part, when we look at these three slash two characters, John Shooter slash Mort Rainey are the same person, which is a very frightening thing to think about, but it's what we gotta do, and Amy Rainey. This story is really like a giant magnifying glass over two people, and a beam of sunlight is going through that magnifying glass, and it's scorching them both. It really is. This relationship is fraught with drama and betrayal and lies, mostly on Amy's part, but then there's also a lot of lies on Mort's part. 
He doesn't know he's lying at the time, but this alternate self, it is wreaking havoc. It is absolutely, literally killing people. But it's a fascinating story to examine it as a tale of a doomed relationship, for sure. Lots of other stuff going on in there as well, because the character of Mort is the reason why all of this happens. But very fascinating, ladies and gentlemen. So once more, the three characters in our main spotlight, Mort Rainey, John Shooter, and Amy Rainey. A triad of doom. (laughs) All right, boys and girls, we're going to take a wee walk in the forest, and I'll meet you in the next section. Okay, friends, gather near. This is the criticism section where we're going to examine some areas that fell flat as well as a few questions. And then we're going to talk about the 2004 film starring Johnny Depp as Mort Rainey. Let's kick it off with criticisms. I really only have one. This is a 150 page novella. There is a lot of drama. There is a lot of thrills and chills and a very unsettling narration and basically the progression of madness, right? The theme of Four Past Midnight is, of course, time. And in this story, we have time lost, those fugue states where Mort thinks he's napping on the couch at the Tashmore Lake House, but he's not. He's out killing people and killing animals and God knows what else. But we also have the erosion of time, sins committed, lies told, and the character of Mort is the driving force behind this tale, guys. But my criticism is that we just don't have enough of young Mort and Mort's parents. I need that psychological childhood boilerplate, guys. I really do, because the character of Mort, the majority of the terrible things he does and is affiliated with is based on this idea that he's not good enough. There's a lot of failure, there's a lot of rejection. This is the stuff that's formed in childhood. This is what's given to us by parental units or legal guardians. This is that stuff that they imprint on us. Sad but true. You can get this from birth order. As the oldest of three, I got a lot of stuff. I had to grow up a little too fast, be responsible way earlier than I should have, which caused crippling anxiety, (laughs) and a host of other issues. What's yours? And I would have loved to have chatted with Mort a little bit more and found out what was the childhood stuff, Mort? When was it that you realized that writing was going to save you, that writing was going to give you an edge over others? You're good enough at this. You are skilled enough at this to avoid XYZ or receive this reward. I wanted a little bit more character development when it comes to Mort and Amy. I don't know if we had a lot of background detail on why they fell in love in the first place. There may have been a couple isolated areas within the story of being attracted to each other or early dating, but it was so cursory, guys. We just don't have enough. King brings us this hefty dump truck full of this guy 
on the edge of a cliff in terms of life stressors, right? Career, relationship, both in the toilet, he's ready to snap. And then we also have this long buried sin that has resurfaced and manifested and it's absolutely all-consuming now. But when it comes to John Shooter, I mean, was this the only time he had ever come out? It seems that way based on Amy telling the reader at the very end, that that point of view switch I told you about earlier, Amy telling the reader about Mort buying the hat at a garage sale and talking in a funny voice whenever he would put it on. But was something like John Shooter something in childhood? I need childhood, guys. So my main criticism for Secret Window, Secret Garden is I need a little bit more background info on both Amy and Mort. I think King, as we all know with his writing style, just went after this. He had the setting, he had his main character, and he slowly started chipping away at this guy's sanity with these life stressors, and then we have a very climactic ending, and then boom, Amy has the last word as Mort has exited the novel. But in order to really make this story resonate a bit deeper with me is give me some more Mort. (laughs) I need some childhood stuff. Because the earliest we go back is in college when he first decides to steal John Kintner's story, Crowfoot Mile, and then he submits it as something else. It might have been Crowfoot Mile. Man, he might have been brazen enough to keep the title. What a butthole. Don't remember. He might have titled it something else. But he first steals from John Kintner in college. As far as we know, he never ever did it again. But that sin of being an imposter, of not being good enough, not being worthy, not being capable, all of this is just a chisel. It's really Andy Dufresneing him at the walls of Shawshank, right? Mort is the walls of Shawshank, and he's just being chiseled away by self-doubt, crippling regret, and shame, like we talked about in our first section. But that all had to start somewhere. That can't just erupt in your mid to early 40s, and then you go off the deep end and start killing people. No, 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 no. All of this started when he was a wee little one. We don't have any mention of his parents. We don't have any mention of his siblings. We need some of that psychological grout, guys. We need the yucky early formative years before college, right? We have some stuff that could have been plugged in there. We didn't have to have a lengthy exploration of that, but I think just a tiny bit more of that childhood stuff, which we know King does such a beautiful job with, would have really made this story sing a bit louder and allow Mort to be a much more layered and complex character. For example, if I would have got a reason why Mort is so crippled by rejection, why there is such a huge hole in his life, my wishing well suggestions, I think, similar to King's own story, Mort should not have had a father figure. As we know, many of us constant readers out there, when we examine Stephen King's personal background, he found out his father was a fan of horror stories and mystery pulp titles. And that was how King connected to this idea of his father. This was something my dad liked. He found a box of these pulp books that belonged to his father. It was a window. It was a window, everyone. It was a connecting doorway to this person. If I had the wishing well capabilities, I would have allowed Mort to not have a father figure and have him always be dreaming or trying to be accepted. Or he could have had a parent who didn't grant him that. 
We kind of had that in our previous novella with the character of Craig Toomey. Craig's parents were holy terrors. They did not accept anything he did, any A's he got at school, any extracurriculars he excelled at, they just shat all over him. He turned out to be an absolute menace. And so Mort isn't exactly as dramatic as Craig Toomey was in The Langoliers, but when he cracks, he cracks, guys. He quite literally becomes a different person. He changes into this monstrous, revenge-seeking entity that is violent and terrifying. We need some background on that. I just need a little bit more, a little bit more to make it really be a home run for me. Because I have a lot of questions. Why is it that at 42, with impending divorce and this scandal of plagiarism coming to a head, would it cause such a dramatic fall off the cliff, guys? Because it is dramatic. Mort morphs into this other person. He is talking to himself. He is putting bruises on his own body. He is leaving paper trails of strangeness. Like, guys, it is dramatic what he does and how much he falls apart. So my main criticism is just a deeper hunger for a little bit more, specifically childhood. So that's what I want, Steve. A little bit more on Amy and Mort's early marriage. I don't even think I jotted down any notes of how long they were married. I think it's less than 10 years, if I'm correct. I might not be. Please forgive me if I made an egregious error, everyone. Please send me a page number so I can rectify this. But in my notes, I believe they've been married less than 10 years. I mean, he could still recover. He could still recover. He is still young and attractive, and he could absolutely find another bedmate and guy or gal to spend some time with, whoever he wants. He's famous, he seems adequately wealthy enough, he could easily recover from this, but what causes such a dramatic drop off the cliff, everybody? That is my main curiosity, my main little issue with Secret Window, Secret Garden. Alright, let's talk about the movie! Okay guys, this was a 2004 film starring Johnny Depp as Mort Rainey, Maria Bello as Amy Rainey, and she also starred in Big Driver, which is the novella out of Stephen King's Full Dark No Stars, Kim C's very, very first Stephen King title in all of her life. Big Driver is so good, guys. Ooh, that's a dark one. All the stories in Full Dark No Stars are incredibly dark, but that one is, whoa, it is about rape and revenge, and Maria Bello did a wonderful job. It was a Lifetime movie adaptation, which I had some qualms about initially, but it was done really, really well. They really captured the story. They stayed very close to the source material. Check it out if you haven't, but Maria Bello is Amy Rainey. This was written and directed by David Kep. I really applaud the visual details of this. The lake, the house, everything is beautiful. We don't have Bump the Cat, but we have a super cute little dog. John Shooter is played by John Turturro, I believe. He is very cool, very well done. And what was probably the most cool is the ending. They definitely deviated from source material and made a much darker ending, everybody. 
As I've kind of talked about in some of my isolated Stephen King film adaptation episodes, I think that directors and writers usually make King's material much darker than it really is. They do. I think they see Stephen King's name on it and they know they can turn up the volume when it comes to a visual depiction and that's what this story does. For the most part, we stay very close to it, but at the end, rather than more exiting the novel and Amy having the POV switch and her talking with one of the publishers about everything that happened with Mort, Mort kills Amy and Ted Milner. Oh, he kills them both. He hides their bodies on the lake house grounds. He plants a crop of corn on top of the bodies and at the very end he's enjoying a couple hot ears of corn (laughs) with some butter and salt while the police chief is sort of accosting him and saying it's only a matter of time before we find the bodies but meanwhile don't show your face in town anymore everybody hates you we know that you're a bad person and we know that you had something to do with their disappearances so how about you gtfo and so that's how it ends and i loved it i i actually i think it works it's much darker much darker and i think we don't have any pity for Mort like we do in this novella where there's for me a little bit of pity there's a lot of fear there's a lot of fear for Mort at the end for him and because of him but there was definitely some pity in terms of like oh man this guy lost it he absolutely cracked he unraveled went nuts he needed a therapist he needed a lot of things oh my goodness But Amy survived, thank goodness, and she's starting a new life with Ted. She's now married to him, all is well. That's how Secret Window, Secret Garden, the novella ends. But they turned it up to level 11 on the film. I actually really like it. Personally, I don't know how they hadn't searched the grounds, but hey, I guess if you're in a country bumpkin little isolated rural location, maybe they just don't have the police force or the robust staff needed to search the grounds. So perhaps it might be a little bit hard to digest logically, but it still works. He kills both of them in a pretty brutal way, ladies and gentlemen. A shovel is involved. We don't see anything, thank goodness, but I really, really enjoyed the visuals of Mort feverishly driving into the hotel room, seeing Amy and Ted. I also really enjoy the voiceover of Mort's inner thoughts. That's one of the really excellent parts as we explored in our first section. But yeah, I was overall very pleased. Casting works, the lake house, the township, and the darker ending. I was okay with it. It was definitely creepier, way more unsettling, and the need for that greater character development wasn't necessary because you just knew that Mort snapped when he took a nap on that couch. All hell broke loose, so I was really okay with it. I actually really enjoyed it. I thought it was a very cool adaptation. And I think that will lead us to the end, guys. Let's get back on the bus and head back to school. Our Tashmore Lake field trip is concluded, but overall, Secret Window, Secret Garden was thrilling. Oh my goodness. Different kind of vibe than the Langoliers. Really, really enjoyed it. Got me thinking of the later publications of Lacey's story, as well as Back of Bones. Ugh, tread carefully with that one. 
but really good stuff here, folks. Very, very pleased. Looking forward to reading more and more is on the way. Our next tale in the slot is The Library Policeman. And oh, guys, I'm almost done reading it and I'm freaking out. <laughs> I'm freaking out. This one's scary. This one's good. This one is so enjoyable, folks. I am really, really trying to keep my heart rate steady with this one. The Library Policeman will be our three past midnight on the way very soon. But thank you all so very much for listening. Thank you for joining us and spending some time with the show. If you have not said hello yet, feel free to hit us up on any of the socials. Please share the show with a friend. And I'm always answering emails at underratedsk at gmail. If you've never written before, longtime listener, first time writer, I would love to hear from you. Let me know your thoughts on the show, favorite episodes, recommendations for future King titles to explore, all that good stuff. I will answer you back promptly. But until then, please review and rate the show whenever you get a chance. It would mean the world to me. I would appreciate it so, so much. Until then, take care. Next week will be a constant reader interview, followed shortly after by Three Past Midnight, The Library Policeman. I'll see you then. Bye-bye.